something that we've been talking about for a while now has to do with our identity in Christ and I, I, I want to ask the question how shall we then live what are we going to do now in other words and we've been saying this for weeks now if you receive Christ as Savior and you are forgiven of your sins, that glorious, wonderful truth, and you are also given the hope and the promise that you will be with God in the end forever, if you are given those two promises, and they're precious promises and precious gifts and benefits, but if those two things occur for you, Still, if you're going to live on this earth, there is a gap between the day of forgiveness and the day that you meet your maker. And in that in-between time, many people ask, what's next? What happens after we believe? And that's kind of what I want to talk to you about. A lot of people think that when you come to Christ, that you're supposed to then just keep the rules. Keep the Christian rules. That's the job. That's the task. Keep the Christian rules. It's not a terrible idea, but it's not the whole thing, that's for sure. There are some rules. We shouldn't murder people. That's a good command. That's a nice rule. We ought to try to keep that. But nevertheless, that's not the main thing. And people who are Christians who are running around, keeping the rules, crossing the T's, dotting the I's, telling you that you're getting it wrong, telling you how you didn't do it right, those people are not keeping the main thing the main thing. That's not the path. It's also true that there's this, in our culture, America is a utilitarian culture. That's the ethic that we use. That's the one we live by. Utilitarianism is the idea that maximizes the most good for the most people. Which sounds like a great idea. It sounds like common sense. Until you get in those situations that are difficult and they're going to hurt the minority in order to help the majority. To do some horrible thing to the minority in order to get the will of the majority. And so the utilitarian ethic isn't strictly speaking the path always in the Bible either. Another path in, that, that's used in our culture is the romanticist existentialist path. And that's the path where we uh, go with our gut. We go with our heart. We're true to ourselves. We, you do you. That path. And, and this is, of course, as we've said several times, this sounds really good. And it's so, it, you hear it so much, you think that's what's right. Because you've heard every movie you ever watched, every book you ever read told you that. Just go with your heart. Go with your gut. Do what, you know, be authentic. Don't be a hypocrite. Just be you. You hear that all the time. Everyone says that to us so much so we think that's the Bible. And the truth is, that's not a great ethic. It's not a biblical ethic. Uh, what if my heart tells me that I want to steal all of your things? Does that mean I should go with my heart? No, that ethic is not going to work and it's not biblical. I want to introduce this congregation. If you're trying to answer the question, how should I live? I want to introduce you to something that's a very old way of thinking about ethics. And it's called virtue ethics. Virtue ethics isn't unique to the Bible. It's something that Aristotle and the Greek philosophers talked about. And Jesus and Paul took it over and made it, put it in the Christian key and played a new song with it. Virtue ethics. I want to show that to you in Colossians chapter 3. Virtue ethics says that what really counts is the formation of a character. The formation of character. And the Christian key says that what really counts in terms of how I ought to behave and how I should then live is the formation of character in the present time that anticipates the promised future. I live today 
as the person I was always destined to be and I'm going to be throughout eternity. That's how we should then live. Colossians chapter 3 is a primer in Christian virtue. It teaches us about Christian virtue. I'm going to read a lengthy section. We don't do this enough in church, and when I say we, I mean me. We don't read enough of the Bible. We read one verse and one phrase. I want to read a lengthier section here, this whole primer of Christian virtue of chapter 3 in Colossians out of the English Standard Version. Here's how it goes. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. If that's all true, verse 5 says, therefore, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two, in these you two once walked, and you were living in when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away: anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Okay, I put all those things off. Then he says, put on then these clothes as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. Be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. So, if I'm raised with Christ, how do I know I'm raised with Christ? The Bible says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And, if, and salvation looks like this. The Bible says in Romans 6 that we were buried with Jesus when we were baptized. We were baptized into his death so that we might be raised with him. Anybody been baptized in water? Did the preacher leave you under the water? No, they didn't, unless they're in jail today. They picked you up and pulled you out of the water. Why did they do that? First of all, it's necessary. You need to breathe. Secondly, the reason they did that was the symbolism of it all. 
Go down in burial and die with Jesus. Let the old person die. If anyone is in Christ, behold a new creation. Old things have passed away. And behold, all things have become new. So go down like Jesus did and be buried. Let that one die. So that then we can pull you out of the water and demonstrate that you are a new person. You are a new creation. Yes, but after I got baptized, I still failed. You may very well have. But you are a saint who doesn't have to anymore. You are not a sinner saved by grace. You're more than that. You are a saint who doesn't have to sin any longer. Maybe you will. Maybe you do. Maybe you do every day. But you don't have to anymore. You have the power within you as a son or daughter of Jesus to live above the law of sin and death. Because the law of the spirit of life is setting us free from that old law of condemnation and death. Amen. And by the way, free from the condemnation of it all. When we do fail, we fail like royal priests. We apologize, we dust ourselves off, and we get up and go again. We don't wallow in self-pity. We don't feel despair. We don't quit. We don't give up. We don't think God doesn't love us anymore. We just apologize we confess it we say God we reject it and we make amends if it's someone else we harmed and we go forward and that's how that's what royal priests do when they fail my little children I write these things unto you that you sin not but if you do you have an advocate with the father that's what the bible said so Christ has already been raised his kingdom has been established it's already established in us and I can function as a royal priest like the genuine human being I was called to be in the here and now. But I have to consider myself that way. I have to reckon that in our mind, my mind. I have to construe. I have to see the world that way. I have to set my mind on those things. I'm not who they say that I am. I'm not worth what they say that I am. I set my mind like a place setting on a dinner table. You only take it off on the holiday. Most of the time, it's set right there. I set my mind on the Word of God, on His truth about me. That's where we keep our minds. Okay. Last week, we talked about setting our minds on things above. We talked all about that. Notice then, let me move on, verse 3. For you have died, okay? That old person is dead and your life is hidden with Christ in God. I thought that was a neat, I've heard this phrase, of course, all my life. I've read it a thousand times, but this week it kind of caught me this way, that my life is hidden with Christ in God. It was like, Satan can't find me. (laughs) I'm, I'm playing hide and seek. See if you can find me. My life's hidden with Christ in God. Amen. I like that. I don't know if it's a silly thing. I told Luke about it and I thought it was pretty cool. But anyway, he liked it. I guess I should save that for Children's Church. But anyway, it was pretty good. So since that's true about you, then develop the character in the present that you are going to become and be in the future. That's the idea. Look at verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Now, the obvious truth here is to say this. That when this whole thing wraps up, you get to be there in glory. Praise the Lord. But I want you to read it a different way with me, okay? I want to emphasize a different aspect of this today. Look at this. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear. What I mean by that emphasis there is this. Some of you, some days, many days, don't feel like you're sons and daughters of God. Some of you don't feel that way. 
you fail the Lord, you mess up, other people say bad things about you, whatever, they, they, you know. And you don't feel like a son or daughter of God every day. Bad things happen to you and you say, well, God, if you're there, why would you let this happen to me? You get frustrated, you get angry, you get scared, you get hurt. You feel whatever that the enemy you know, reminds you of this, that, and the other and brings things up to your past. But here it says, when Christ appears, then you also will appear. In other words, when Jesus shows up, you are finally going to see who you always were all along. Then you also will appear. In that moment, you'll know that what you have trusted in all this time. It will finally appear to you and everyone else what you have by faith believed now. Then faith will become sight. You also will appear with him in glory. Because that's where you are right now, whether you see it or not. God says, I want you to see it that way. I want you to set your mind on those things. That's where you are. Now, if all of that is true, then he says the only rational thing to do, the next step then, if that's who you are, you're a royal priest, you're in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, your life's hidden with Christ in God, you're going to appear to the world in glory like Jesus. If all that's true, then therefore put to death some stuff inside of you. Now, I want you to hear that. It doesn't say like, if you think that it's a good idea, maybe you ought to put some of this stuff away. It says, put to death these things. Put to death all these things. And we get into relational issues and desires that displease God and desires that take away from God's, uh, God's first place in our lives that overwhelm us. And also in relationships, the way we talk and anger and, and, and all of our interpersonal stuff. He says, put all of that away. You used to live in all of that. That stuff is corrupting. Look at what it says at verse, in verse uh, 6. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Now when you hear that, that sounds like, oh yeah, we're back to the rules again. I mess up, God throttles me with a, with a thunderbolt. That's how this works. But that's not what this is saying. In 2008 and 2009, there was a, fi a financial crisis around the world, a banking crisis. I'm not an economist, and I don't understand some, of, some economics. I don't understand some of the headier stuff in economics. I barely passed it in high school, but I will tell you this. Okay, this is why I do know this about the banking crisis. Whatever else was going on, and I'm sure a lot could be said, one thing for sure at a common sense layman's level, here's what happened. Are you ready? A bunch of people, banks and lenders, let a bunch of people who couldn't afford the houses they were buying to buy houses that the sellers had inflated the prices so high they weren't worth what these poor people were paying for them. Now, that's why the banking crisis, financial crisis happened. There's a thousand other things that people could say. But one of the main drivers was... People were lending money to people who had no business spending that much money. And those houses had, those people had no business charging those prices for those houses. It was all inflated. Now, inside that mess, there is a corruption, a corrosive influence. There's no way that's not going to fail over time. So when Paul says, on these activities, the wrath of God is coming, God didn't have to send a thunderbolt down to wipe all that out. No, no, no. Those practices 
inside of those practices is a built-in, by necessity, compulsion to corrosion, corruption, decay, and death. God knows. He knows what works and what doesn't. Some of you are new and you don't know this illustration. I offer it briefly. I played G.I. Joe's when I was a boy. The little Hasbro six-inch characters, those are four to six-inch characters. Those guys had hands with posable thumbs to hold equipment, to hold weapons. And, and the manufacturers from Hasbro or Mattel, those engineers and the manufacturers had a certain set of practices and uses for their toy that they made that they could hold the equipment, hold the weapon, and that's what they do. And if you do it right, if you stay within those specs, those toys will succeed for you. They will function for you. You will enjoy them. You'll get hours of enjoyment and years of enjoyment out of them. But the manufacturer and the engineers did not say in their specs, we would like it. If you would put a lit firecracker in the thumbs of those toys, that'll work out real well. No, that wasn't something that was built in to the engineering of those toys. But kids, some kids, me, put the lit firecrackers in the hands of these toys. And when I did, it often blew the thumbs right off of the toys. Now... Then they couldn't hold the weapon or, the, in, or the, 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 the steering wheel or whatever anymore. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that I abused the toys. I used them in ways the engineers didn't design, and I paid the consequences. And so did my sister, because when she wanted to play, I shipped off to her the old blown-up toys. I, did, I played with the good ones, and she got the blown-up ones. I'm sorry, that wasn't you know Christian of me, but that's what happened a lot. I'm just being confessional. So, God is like those engineers from Hasbro or Mattel. He has created us in a certain way with certain functions and usages. He has placed guardrails. And he has said, if you stay inside of these, you will get years of living pleasure out of this. If you don't, if you go outside of this, if you do the equivalent of putting lit firecrackers inside... You will abuse yourself and you will not function at the high level that you were made to function. There will be consequences. Not because I'm angry and waiting for you to fail and throwing a lightning bolt your way. But because built into those behaviors, baked into them, is the destruction, corruption, corrosion, decay and death that you experience. That's what happened with the banking crisis. God didn't especially get up off his throne and go zap to the western world and capitalism no it was built into those bad behaviors so Paul says put to death those things on account of those things the wrath of God is coming God's wrath often looks like this okay do what you want to do you say you want to do that I've tried to tell you no I've tried to pull the rope back I've tried to pull you keep pulling you keep pulling okay do what you want to do see and sometimes when we won't listen to the gentle wooing of the spirit God will allow us to fall flat on our back that way not so that we can stay there forever but so that we'll recognize that resisting him is pointless and dumb and there are consequences for doing it okay Put to death those things. Put to death those things. Look at these other things. 
Verse 7, you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. A lot of this stuff is about interrelational, interpersonal stuff. Don't lie to each other. Seeing that you put off the old self. When you lie to each other, it's difficult then for you to have any trust with people. And then that breaks down relationships and communication. So you see, God isn't saying, I'm waiting to zap you. He's saying, this stuff outside of these perimeters, it doesn't work. There's decay inside of it. Put to death that stuff. Not because you're trying to earn salvation, but because you are a son and a daughter of God. You are living from the power of the future, and Satan has no authority over you. And those works of death have no place inside of you. Put to death, therefore, those things. You don't have to live like that anymore. You can be a light. Now, don't, don't, put these things off, those practices in verse 10. Put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. You're not, you're not going to be renewed in the image of your creator if you're not in the word of God. You will not be renewed in the image of your creator if you are not seeing his face. And you will see his face and his will in his word. And the only places that I know to see it are these. Here's where you're going to see God's face in this world. You're going to get as close as you can to see God in this world. In prayerful reading of the scripture. In God's house where they're preaching the word of God. And in the need. Jesus shows up in a distressing disguise sometimes. That's a Michael Card song. Distressing disguise. He hopes that we'll realize that when we take care of the poorest of them, we've really done it to him. He shows up when we show. Where is God? He is in the need. He is in the poor that we are told to feed. And when we take care of the poorest of them, we've really done it to him. You want to see God's face? Serve people. You want to see God's face? Get in the word. Read it prayerfully. Meditate. Have Bible study at home. Have it at church. Come to God's house and hear it preached. When you do these things, you will be renewed in the image of your creator. And then it says, here there's neither Greek nor Jew. In other words, this is available to everybody. That's why it's so disgusting when there's cliques in church. People ought to be able to come in here and be free. There shouldn't be any judgment in this place. Look, I believe in a high standard of holiness in the leadership of a church. I really do. And we try to embody that and live that. I'm not saying we're perfect, but we try to maintain a standard. There are things that I might do if I wasn't pastoring that I absolutely will not do as a pastor. There are things that I say. There are jokes that I let go that I could say that I think of in my mind that I refuse to say. Primarily because I'm a pastor. I'm serious. There are things that I don't say. There's jokes. That th- I don't mean things that are evil or horrible. I mean those things on the line. I just don't do them very often. I don't engage in them. And when I do, I have to follow up and apologize and make it right. I really do. I take it very seriously, the standard. But here's the thing. I said all that to say this. There's a standard that ought to be lived in leadership and holiness. But guess what? Beyond that, everybody ought to be able in this community to come to this church and feel welcome. If you're not... Preaching the word of God. If you're not saying to people, I'm teaching the word of God. The Bible said if you desire to teach that, you desire a great thing. But you better be ready for responsibility because you're going to be responsible before God for what you say and what, how people respond or what they hear from you. So, so we have a standard in leadership in this place. We take very seriously. We also take very seriously that if you're drunk, this is a good place to get on Sunday morning. And we're going to help you. 
If you are in a situation in your life where you're about to file bankruptcy, you're about to get divorced, your kid's gone off the deep end, this is the best place you could be on Sunday, okay? You don't run from this place when God, because we don't believe in that kind of stuff. We believe in this place that we're going to love everybody. Paul said here, here there is no Greek or Jew. Here there is no Greek or Jew. There is no Scythian or barbarian. There's nobody too low or too high. Nobody too rich or too poor. That's not how this works. There's no color distinctions here. Christ is all and in all. Okay, so put off all that junk. Okay? Not if you want to. Put it to death. If you don't kill this stuff, it will kill you. That's what God said. If you don't kill this stuff in you, it will kill everything important in your life. Kill it. Don't play with it. Don't compromise with it. Kill it. That's what the Bible says to do. Okay, then next, the scripture says um, something about putting on then. And look at this. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. That's saints. That's saints language. That's what that is. Holy and beloved. You hear that? God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. You are loved and God declares you holy. You can do this, the Bible said. You can live the Christian life. It's not impossible. With God, all things are possible. Praise the Lord. And you don't have to try hard so that you can earn God's favor because you're never going to be loved by God more than you are right now. You're never going to do anything or say anything or be anything that's going to make God love you more. But, but, This revulsion that comes from the deeds of the body that are death is vital to character growth and formation because, because, okay, someone's going to say, preacher, if I'm not earning my salvation by doing all these things, in other words, if I'm not escaping hell and getting forgiveness by, by just, you know, praying a lot and reading a lot and showing up at church and giving and being nice to people, if that's not getting me into heaven, then why in the world would anybody do any of that stuff? If that's what you think the Christian faith is, somebody messed you up in the beginning. Okay? Yes, you can be forgiven of your sins. Yes, there is a kingdom come. Yes, there is a judgment. Yes, there is a a devil's hell to shun and all of that. But that is not what the gospel is. The gospel is the announcement that the kingdom of God is here. And you... God has been established king and his big kingdom project is getting done and Jesus established it on earth on the cross and he has already won the decisive battle and you and I get to be the kings and priests that he always called us to be. We get to be part of a bigger project. My forgiveness and my eternal life is a small piece of this big project God is doing, okay? So why would I do these things? I'll tell you why. It's what I said Thursday night. I want to bring, I want to come back to this because a lot of people didn't hear this, okay? If you were living in the Middle Ages and you were, you worked with, you were a day laborer, a, a dirt sucking peasant, okay? That's what you were. And you and your son and your cousin and your brother and your friend, y'all all had a construction crew. Y'all were day laborers. And you're out there and your stonemason boss comes out and dumps on your family, on your crew. A, a pile of rocks about the size of this room or half. 
and says, look, in six months I'm coming back, and this is what I want you to do. I want you to do this move with the stone, and I want you to do this, this, and this, and I want you to do this little move, and I want you to remove that, and I want you to put these over here and these over here. And you do all this work for six months, and it's very monotonous, and you don't have no idea what in the world you're doing for. And at the end of the six months, you're sitting there, and you're like, I don't know. I mean, I don't know that my work makes any difference. I don't understand. What did I accomplish? It's just all day long with the repetitive And then six months later, the stonemason shows up. And his laborers come and take those stones that you've smoothed and hewn, that you've shaped and prepared. And he goes over on carts, animal-bearing carts, and they lift these stones and they put them inside, block by block, the cathedral of Notre Dame. And you've been building all this time. You didn't know all this that you're doing was building something beautiful, a cathedral for God. Okay, I know those people were treated poorly, and it's not a great analogy because God doesn't enslave us. He said, take my yoke upon you, learn of me. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. But I want to tell you this. We're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And even those of us who are saved and who know God and who are going to live with him forever, I'm going to stand before God. Every idle word, everything's bad. And I'm going to be there, and I'm going to have works. Okay? And I'm going to be standing before God. The Bible says some people are going to have works of wood, hay, and stubble, and they're going to burn right up. Some people are going to stand before God, and they will have done some things that will be worked out in gold, silver, and bronze. And those things are going to last. And they're going to stand. God told Mount Olive years ago, in a town of hundreds, you're going to reach thousands. There were 45 or 50 of us when God said that to us. Can you imagine someday when we stand before God and those 45, 50 that have become 100, 150, can you imagine when we stand before God and 91,000 people are there with us and we say, look what the Lord has done. Why should we work? Why should we work while it's day if we're not earning our salvation? Because you're a royal priest. That's who you are. You don't have to be that other person anymore. Put to death that stuff and put on these clothes. What are these clothes? Look at them. Verse 12. Compassionate hearts, kindness, and humility. Did you know Frederick Nietzsche? He's a great enemy of the Christian faith. He's twisted up a lot of 19-year-old heads. You go to college, you leave your mom, your dad, you leave your family, you leave the school, you leave the comfort of your home church and pastor, and you get to college, and that professor at that state school in composition one or whatever, somebody, philosophy or whatever it is, and they introduce you to Frederick Nietzsche, and he tell, they tell you how you know, he proved that Christian faith isn't real. And he, he, made a, he made a mess of it. He's a great enemy of the faith. One of the things he said he hated about Christianity was he said humility is the uniquely Christian virtue. Humility. Humility. He hated humility. He said, it's time for us to become the supermen that we were always destined to be. If they can't take care of themselves, it's survival of the fittest. Leave them. But Christianity wants us to take care of the weak. It wants us to prefer our brothers instead of ourselves. He hated Christianity. He said Christianity's unique virtue was humility. 
Now, why is that interesting and important for us this morning? Because someone who had no stock in giving us any credit for anything gave us credit for something. He said that Christians are people of humility. He got that right out of the Word of God. Paul said something like this here. Put on, like clothes, humility. Now, I know for some of you it's like, this is awkward though, preacher. I mean, like I don't, if you were an accountant all your life and you've been putting on a suit all day, every day for 20 years, and then at the end of that career you retired and you decided you were going to go into construction, and for the first, can you imagine the first month, you probably walk in there after your shower and go in the closet and put on a tie and get ready to walk out the door and go, oh yeah, I'm going out there in the mud. It would be hard. i got to take off these clothes. I've been wearing these clothes so long, i got to go put on these clothes. You're going to have to think about the clothes that you wear if you're going to be a royal priest. You have to think about the clothes. It's going to take some hard work. Nobody wants to hear that, but it's going to. Not hard work to earn your way to heaven. Hard work to be who God told you to be. Hard work to be the, the person that God's called you to be, a royal priest. It's going to take some habitual training. We're going to have to do some habits. You know what the first habit somebody in here needs to do? The first habit you need to create is breaking the old one. The next time, you know what, this fall, I got some teachers in here. I'm going to do you all a favor. Next fall, if it's your habit to assume that whatever happens at the school is always their fault and not the students, your kids, who never, ever would, they would never do anything like that. Not my child. If that's your habit, I challenge you as a royal priest and priestess to change your, that. the first habit you need to create is withhold your judgment next time. Wait if you always assume it's your sorry kid that did it, withhold your judgment. That's a new habit that you create. The first habit you need to do the first, to, to step into as a royal priest, break the old one. If someone says something around you that sounds like they could use good advice and you love to give unsolicited advice, you like to tell people. It's like, a, a, it's like a compulsion to say, no, that's stupid. No, don't do that. You know better than that. If it's like just about to jump out of your mouth, don't say that. If that's about to happen to you, then my advice to you is this. My encouragement to you is the first habit that you can break or you can create is break that one. Hold your tongue the next time you feel the compulsion and see what the Lord will do. See what will happen in that relationship as you practice it. If it's your habit not to apologize to people. I know a pastor who is a good man and loves God and is on my team. He is on my team. I love this guy. He can't apologize. He just can't and won't do it. He was in insurance for 30 years. And in the insurance game, you never take responsibility for anything. Right? I'm just kidding. Anyway, it's a compulsion. Not our problem. It's a compulsion. We don't cover that. Not our problem. That's not our business. Not our problem. You pay that. It's 30 years of insurance. 
passing on the claims, and now in his personal life can't say, I'm sorry. You don't own that, you see. Don't own that is basically what something inside of him tells him. Some of you today break the first, the first habit you create is break the old habit and make the apology. Be the first one to say, you know what, I disagree with that, but I didn't say that the way it should have been said. You say, well, man, that doesn't feel right. People, it's weird. It's going to seem strange. Look, I, when I was a kid, I mean, I, 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 I'm, I, I'm not a big guy. When I was a kid, tiny, tiny kid, tiny kid, playing Little League Baseball, the helmet was always up and down, up and down when I was running, you know. I'd be running down to first base and just throw the thing off my head. A lot of good that was doing me, get hit in the head with a baseball. You know, that was about happened. I was having trouble early on because I had my hands at the bottom of the bat. And my dad and some other coach said, choke up, which means take your hands from the bottom of the bat and move up the bat a little bit. Now, for a while, that felt weird. A couple of times, I actually hit myself in the stomach with the piece of the bat sticking here, and it felt weird. And I was like, I'm never going to hit a ball. like This is crazy. This doesn't work. But as I practiced that awkward new thing, it became more like second nature and automatic. And the more I did it, the more often I hit the ball and hit the ball well. Some of you that play instruments, let's say, for instance, like the piano, what if the composer came to you and said, here's the fingering. Here's how you do it. you got to go like this. That's how you do it. And you go, oh, no, that's weird. You don't do, I don't do that. That's not how I do it. But every time I play it, it sounds terrible. But the composer says, no, no, do it that way. But that's crazy. I've never done that. Well, just try it. And it sounds weird. But if the composer's telling you, the one who actually did it, they probably know the fingering, do that. Do that. And over time, it becomes second nature, and the song starts to sound the way it should sound. Okay? You're going to be feeling awkward when you put off clothes you've been wearing a long time. It's going to feel weird when you wake up and you're not mad anymore. It's going to feel weird when they say something snotty to you and you come back at them with kindness. It's going to feel awkward, and you're going to be like, I'll never hit a baseball like that. I'll never make this song sound right. Uh, the grip on a golf club. Have you ever seen this mess, the way you're supposed to hold a golf club? The way they make you grip that thing? I mean, it's like, you'll never hit a ball. If you've been, if you've been practicing, but here's a problem. If you say, they say practice makes perfect. Not if it's bad practice. Amen, Matt Allison. You know what I'm talking about. But it's beautiful when people practice and it starts to happen. When April shows those little kids about kindness, be kind, and she sows out that kindness, those little first graders, second graders, kindergartners, all those ones, sow it out, sow it out, sow it out. And then they show kindness to each other. And they start to, she starts to see. She starts to get to witness, uh, I asked I some others, I mean, I know Matt's had this with his girls about, you know, you coach and you coach and you push and you push, and then you see him actually get the runner out on the, what do you call that, the, uh, help me out, the uh, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, rundown, the rundown, how did I forget that, okay, the rundown, 
Okay. Let me, I, I, I got something here I want, you, I, I want to read to you. Okay. Larry Langford told me, I remember Courtney Cole, well, Courtney Trapp now, re- she retired as an officer, you know, at, at, with him in ag. Uh, in her first year, she made a remark when she was her first year in ag. She said uh, something about, they were talking about a cow's udder, and she leaned over to her friend and asked a question, and Larry said, what is it? And she said, I thought that's where cows urinated from. So most of the class laughed and promptly explained that milk is, in fact, what we get from the udder. The day that she retired as an officer from ag, she said, I came into ag as a girl who thought cows urinated out of their udder, but I'm leaving as a young woman who can't ride a roller coaster or push a buggy around Walmart without checking out the welds on it. It takes practice. It takes practice. And I want to tell you something that no preacher ever told me when I was growing up. I want to right a wrong for you, okay? It's okay to practice. You're going to fail some, okay? You're going to choke that bat up, and it's going to hit you in the chest once or twice. You're going to try to do the fingering on the piano and get it right, and it's going to sound awkward and slow, and you're going to get frustrated sometimes. But it, you have permission to practice. The Christian life. You don't have to be perfect today. You're not trying to earn your way, your salvation, your favor with God. If you believe in Jesus Christ, if you have called upon the name of the Lord, if you have heard the knocking at the door and you have invited him in to your life then you are his and the perfection game and the condemnation game are the devil's sucker's game you don't have to play anymore. Put off that old stuff and put on these clothes. And look at this. I'll close with this. Put on love. Love is the belt. It's the belt that pulls the whole ensemble together. I wanted Nicole, I asked her yesterday if she had like a really clunky big coat and uh, that was kind of a jokey one you know whatever she said she had your letterman jacket and I was like no that's not what I want anyway how dare she anyway I wanted to put a big coat on somebody that didn't fit old clothes old clothes and then I wanted to find a belt that, that, that matched everything to show you how the belt pulls the whole thing together If you don't have anything else, love is the belt. It's the thing that pulls the thing. If you're going to put on anything, put on love. Did you know what? In this world, going into the next, a lot of things aren't going to make it. A lot of stuff's not going from this age to the next one. But there is one thing that abides and is going to build a bridge from this world to the next one, and that is love. Put on love. Practice that today because that's who we are and what the kingdom comes will be like. It will be a place of love. Can you do any practical things, Pastor? Can you tell me practical things? Read the last part of the, of the, the section for yourself. Three things he said. 
Let the peace of Christ rule your hearts. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly and be thankful. I'll pray with you over this. Letting, letting. Years ago, I tried to give this illustration, uh, or I did give this illustration of if I'm standing here, or I'm sitting here at a red light, and you're right here in your car, and, and I'm here, and then you rev your engine at me, and you tell me by the universal sign that you want to race me. And then I agree to this game. And then we start racing, and you blow the doors off of my Honda. Nobody in my car is going to say, that guy's got some kind of clutch in that car. They're not going to talk about the clutch. They're not. But if it's a five-speed and you don't release the clutch, I'm going to win. The engine is what we're going to remark about when you beat me, not the clutch. But if you don't depress that, pedal and release the clutch the engine can't do anything right so in a primitive way my primitive automotive understanding if I don't release the clutch the engine is virtually useless the Bible says Jesus went into Capernaum in his own hometown and he couldn't do many mighty works because they didn't believe the engine's powerful. God can do these things in your life. You can live the Christian life. You are a royal priest. But if you don't let the clutch out, if you don't have faith, if you don't trust God, if you don't let Him do what He can do, you'll sit there and I'll beat your car every time. No matter what engine you have in it. We must let the peace of Christ. Let the word of Christ. We Say yes. Father, this is what you call us to. You have already given us forgiveness, eternal life. You have already adopted us. If we have called upon your name, if we have confessed our sins and understood that your death on the cross was for us, to bring us back to God. If we trust that you were raised from the dead. That, that you have killed death dead. That, that there's new life and new possibility now. If we trust you for these things. That the Bible says that we are saved. We don't have to earn any of this. It's, it's ours right now. We are in heavenly places with Christ. We are raised with Christ. And Lord if that's true then we're saints that don't have to sin anymore. Those practices and habits and, and habits of mind and imagination and speech, they don't have to rule us anymore. We can be set free from them. We have been, and we are royal priests. We can take authority over those things. Nevertheless, this doesn't happen just by happenstance or just by zapping us. Instead, it's going to take spiritual discipline. We're going to have to practice. We're going to have to practice. Wow. Church, I think I, just, I think I just heard the Holy Spirit say this. I offer you this. Somebody in here, you've been waiting on God to, to just sort of drop this change into your life. Like just like zap, you know, just boom, it's done. 
And God is calling you. He says, if you will follow me, deny yourself, pick up a cross, and go. This is going to be a process. You're going to have, this transformation of your character is going to come day by day by day. Practice it. I give you the right, God says. I give you the freedom and permission to try, to practice. No harm, no foul. You're my child. I love you. You can't earn anything better. I'm giving you the chance to try. Practice. And if your adversary says to you, you've tried before and failed, God says today, try again. If your heart condemns you, I'm greater than your heart, God says. And remember that Satan is an accuser. And he wants you to fail. And he's a thief who comes to kill, steal, and destroy. So why are you listening to him? And the Holy Spirit's speaking to some people right now. You're given permission to try, to practice. Choke up on the bat, to try on the new clothes. But it's going to take, you're going to have to think about what you're going to wear. And you know what? Some of you who have a habit of speech that is, you're just quick to anger. Some of you this week, because of habits, you're going to get the words out of your mouth. And what's going to have to happen is this. Instead of getting it right all at once, some of you, what's going to happen is your practice is going to have to look like this. You're going to say the words, the thing that you normally do. And you're going to have to actually stop in that moment and say something like this. That's not what I meant to say. That's not the way I meant to say it. I apologize. Let me try again. And people are going to look at you funny at first. And it's going to feel awkward for a while, choking up on the bat. But over time, day by day, it's going to become like, automatic second nature and people are going to begin to expect that from you and the devil says that'll never happen your daddy was stubborn and you're stubborn and you'll always be stubborn and your kids will be stubborn and that's the way it is and God says that's a lie from the devil's hell change can happen Father I thank you for all of that thank you for that 